I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. I had to make this decision of almost like separating into two selves, the the public self and the private self. Because on one hand, like, yay, strong person fighting for change. And then there's this other side of me that was completely, utterly destroyed, Mm -hmm. fragile, crying all the time, you know, uh, and um, it was probably the most unhealthy place to be. The book Stand is one of the most inspirational and well-written books available in the market today. Author and accomplished athlete, having raced five years on the pro circuit for women's pro cycling, Catherine Bertine is an advocate for equality in women's sports. An activist at heart, she began La Tour Entier in an effort to bring equity in women's professional road cycling, starting with the Tour de France. She and her team succeeded with women being included in 2014 as La Course de Tour de France began. A true leader and persistent and hardworking advocate, Catherine has accomplished a great deal to advance women in sports. Her documentary, Half the Road, profiled the inequities between men and women road bike pro cycling. Since retiring from professional racing in 2017, Catherine founded and is CEO of Homestretch Foundation, which provides free housing and other resources to primarily female, elite professional athletes who face economic discrepancies. Catherine Bertine is a fantastic podcast guest. I am very excited today to have with me Catherine Bertine. She has just released a wonderful book, one of the best books I think I've ever read, uh, one of the most inspiring books I've ever read, and it's called Stand. And the tagline uh, on the front of the book, it says, A Memoir on Activism, A Manual for Progress, What Really Happens When We Stand on the Front Lines of Change. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Susan. It's great to be here with you. Oh, it's just wonderful to have you here, and I'm just excited about this uh, this talk. Uh, I love the book. On stand, uh, a quote from Gabby Giffords, uh, U.S. Congresswoman. Uh, she is a survivor, of course, of the shooting and an activist herself, says about the book, when confronted with injustice, Catherine Bertine didn't quit, and she didn't back down. She poured her heart and soul into confronting this injustice and emerged victorious. Catherine's story is one of hope and perseverance despite the odds of being stacked against her. Every girl and woman who's been told they can't play or keep up with the boys will take heart from this inspirational, life-affirming story. So welcome again, Catherine. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. And thanks to Gabby Giffords for those really kind words. I yes. feel very, very fortunate. Yeah, I know. I know you've become friends. Um, yeah. uh, I think the thing I love most about this book is how beautifully and appropriately that every single time you interview, uh, interweave into your writing curse words. <laughs> <laughs> You're, they're they're perfectly placed. <laughs> Thank you. I love that you said that. I I did have one reader who um, felt that it was it was a little bit off putting. This is you know an older gentleman, and um, and I kindly explained. I said, you know, as a journalist and a writer, I think word choice is very important. But every now and then, 
that word is the right word to yes. use. It is the most appropriate. So yes. when we I can s- agree to disagree on that one for yes. that gentleman and I. <laughs> I, I think they were perfect. And I have said to people, I say them and I write them for emphasis. Sometimes you need emphasis, and those words are are important in that mm-hmm. in that sense. So, yeah. um, I want our listeners to know about you, and I'm going to provide a somewhat lengthy introduction of you and about what I want them to know. Um, Catherine Bertine is an author, an athlete, an activist, and documentary filmmaker. During her career in pro cycling, she was a three-time Caribbean champion, six-time national champion of the Caribbean countries, St. Kitts and Nevis, and raced five years on the pro circuit with four UCI, I'll define that later, domestic and world tour teams, Colavita, Wiggle Honda, BMW, and Cyclins Pro Cycling. She retired from racing in 2017, but remains active in advancing equity for women's pro cycling. Four books she has written, the newest one, of course, Stand. Also, All the Sundays, Yet to Come, As Good as Gold, and The Road Less Taken. She has produced a documentary released in 2014 profiling the inequities which exist between men's and women's cycling called Half the Road. She has tirelessly and relentlessly started and organized the movement to bring parity to women's professional cycling, road cycling, starting with the Tour de France. She and her team succeeded, and the women were included in the Tour de France in 2014 with the addition of La Course by Tour de France. In 2017, she founded Homestretch Foundation, which provides free housing and support to female professional athletes, I think around 70 or so, so far. Yeah, 70 so far, 17 different countries represented. Wonderful. Catherine has been featured on the cover of Bicycling Magazine and profiled in Outside Magazine for her platforms of implementing change in the world. So again, I may be welcoming you one last time, but thank you again for for coming here. I'm excited to interview you. Thank you, Susan. I learned about you, Catherine, through my husband, Steve Snyder, and you were with Steve during a long bike ride, I think around five days, in Costa Rica in February 2013, and he really likes you and really enjoyed spending time with you. Yeah, Steve was great. Steve was great, <laughs> and that 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 trip actually is uh, profiled a bit in Stand as well. Yes. So. Yeah, yes. it was one of my many part-time jobs of, you know, um, trying to trying to make it as a pro athlete with, um, you know, not having much of a wage. I had to pick up work elsewhere. So doing tour guides for bike companies was one of those many adventures. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> well, he was one of the people you call in the book, uh, one of the middle-aged triathletes. <laughs> <laughs> When I got to that part, I said, I think she's writing about you, honey. Uh, you're one of the middle-aged triathletes in here. Oh, said with love. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> and he was. He was doing uh, triathlete events at the time, swimming, biking, and running. Uh, and he got a tattoo of a bike chain on his calf uh, after that trip. I remember that. That's yes. right. I remember yes. that. <laughs> uh, so he loved being with you and Chrissy Wellington, and we'll talk about her later. Um 
And my husband said to me, Steve said, uh, you've got to interview Catherine for your podcast. And I have to tell you, my first thought was, I don't know if she really fits. Um, because in Leading She, we interview primarily top executive women, top-level entrepreneurs, top medical women, academia, women in academia. And I'm like, she's an athlete. I'm not sure she fits. And while you are you are an accomplished athlete, you're really more of an activist, right? Thank you. Uh, yes, I, I suppose that fits my title, especially now that I'm retired from sport. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so I began researching you. I've read your book, watched your documentary, and I realized, of course, you fit. Uh, you have fought gender bias head on, and you've won uh, in one of the most male-dominated sporting events, pro cycling. You have faced head on the big Goliaths of UCI and ASO. Again, we'll define those, and and you won. Uh, this is gender bias, really, on steroids times a hundred percent. You know, compared to other areas, including including business. Um, and my guests have largely been in business, medical profession, like I say, academia. This is a, this is just gender bias extraordinaire. And we can learn a lot from you standing up for what's right and from your story. So. Thank you. And uh, this podcast is about you, but I relate to you on so many levels. I have always loved sports. I've always played sports, uh, tennis, soccer, volleyball, ran track. I'm a golfer now. I stick to things that older people can do and not get hurt. <laughs> um, I've always been a writer. I'm a type A personality. And uh, just about everywhere I go, I seek justice no matter where I am. Uh, and uh, when I see something wrong, I usually stand up. Uh, although as I've gotten older, I've become a little more discerning about picking my battles. I'm not sure if you can relate to that or not. I can. I absolutely can. It can be an exhausting process. And uh, yeah, it's very important to pick which ones we're going to allocate our strength and um, energy toward. Yes, definitely. And I am a feminist, so I think you and I could hang together and probably have a good time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's get started with some questions. But uh, over over my um, accounting of your progress, career, what you've done, you were you were a writer, of course, for ESPN and journalism, senior editor. Um, tell me about the ride. Give me some kind of a summary of what you would say. What are you most proud of? What what um, what do you look back and what are your reflections? I think in this this timeline that Stand covers, you know, which is really from, let's say, um, two thousand eight until. 2017. So it's a near decade, you know, of, of a life journey that I didn't necessarily expect to take, but, uh, you know, followed this path that kind of opened up before me. So um, I would say for me, maybe the, what I'm proud of is um, stepping into the unknown, you know, taking a path that uh, was very atypical. You know, I think most women in their early to mid thirties, would say, okay, well, you know, I'm supposed to have um, uh, a house, a career, two kids, picket fence, you know, et cetera. And I really took a left turn from that um, and followed my gut. You know, I when I got into cycling and I saw this opportunity to potentially race at the professional level, um, I was aware that this would be 
a short-term career. You know, it's hard to be a professional athlete for an entire lifetime, you know? So I knew I had a window, but I also knew that chasing that possibility meant um, taking on an atypical life, right? You know, I didn't have the certainties that uh, most women my age did at that time. Mm -hmm. So part of it was, was scary to be like, Oh, this is going to be interesting. You know, I'm highly educated. I have a master's degree, but yet I'm going to have to take on a gazillion part-time jobs like waitressing and um, substitute teaching, et cetera. You know, if I want to chase that goal of racing, which means I'm going to have to train, you know, for Mm -hmm. the majority of of the day. Um, So, you know, and of course, things like not having um, proper health insurance or not really sure where the next paycheck was coming from. That was freaky, you know, to step into that world. Yeah. (laughs) But I also felt internally that it was the right decision. Um, I really, I think by that point had an understanding that I had to listen to my gut. Mm -hmm. Uh, But of course, what I didn't know was all of the things that would um, surface yes. during that time. Right. We're going to talk about some of that. But I, re- I really like the uh, reference, and it's outlined in the book, I think, Tom, that helped you with Homestretch Foundation. Talk about you took a left. You didn't do what left. was typical uh, of women that are in their 30s. You you took a left, and it takes courage to do that, to, to do something that maybe not everybody is doing, but it felt right to you. Yeah. Yeah. I never had a decision of like, oh, let's see. It looks like there's a left turn coming up here. Should I take it? And, you know, it wasn't like this calculated decision, but it was maybe just adhering to gut says do this. Yeah. (laughs) Follow your instinct. Um, You took up cycling late. You were 31 years old when you got on your first road bike, but you were hooked. You said in the book, it was cycling that grabbed my soul and didn't let go. Talk about that. Why do you love it so much and why does it appeal to you? Yeah. So I think, you know, I, um, much like you mentioned, Susan, I grew up playing sports and um, I feel very fortunate that my parents exposed me to all sorts of sports, you know? So as a kid, I was playing softball or various league sports. And then we lived near a skating rink and, um, I, I got into figure skating and as a kid, that's what grabbed my soul and skating did not let go until past college. I even toured professionally for a year after college in skating. I loved it. It was an amazing, incredible experience. And then when I um, came out to university of Arizona for graduate school in writing and in journalism, you know, I, I needed, um, a new sport uh, to get into one, because there were no rinks in Tucson. And also I I had also been a rower in college. So there was neither ice nor water in Tucson, Arizona. (laughs) And uh, right. And so, but being an athlete, I needed something athletic to do. And I wasn't really into, you know, the gym membership thing. I prefer to be outside. And one of my rowing friends said, Oh, you should get a bike it's so conducive to the rowing muscles and also to the skating muscles. Um, And I was like, Oh, I never thought about that. Okay. And it turned out that the U of A had a triathlon club that grad students could join. It wasn't like a varsity sport that you had to be recruited for, you know, it's at club level. And so I, I got a bike. It was a triathlon tri bike, you know, and I, and I got into triathlon and I loved it, but sure enough, what, happened was of those three sports, swimming, biking, and running, uh, the bike was my strongest event mm-hmm. in those 
great. And eventually I took that segue to just follow mm-hmm. cycling. Yeah. So that was a little bit of how that journey started. <laughs> yeah. Really cool. I know you uh, skated for the ice capades, right? I remember the ice capades. Yep. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those, you know, and ice capades has pretty much been replaced by Disney on ice these days, but it's yes. the same idea. That is what I did. And mm-hmm. um, one year of touring was enough. It was kind of a detour from the athletic side of the mm-hmm. sport that I love so mm-hmm. much. So Neat. one year was fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you were a senior editor for women's sports uh, with e- ESPN, and you were trying to get ESPN to cover women's cycling events and support Half the Road. Uh, they had just done a documentary series, 30 for 30, which focused really on men's pro cycling. And you reported to this other senior editor, Tanya, um, and there is uh her quote in the book where she says, well, it's just women's bike racing. Does anyone even watch that? And she said with a laugh, you might want to cover your ears, Catherine, but no one's going to watch a film about women's cycling. <laughs> so mm-hmm. famous last words. <laughs> Talk about that experience and uh, what you uh, what you learned there. Yeah, yeah. So Tanya was the editor-in-chief um, at ESPNW, which was the new branch that they were mm-hmm. creating for women's sports. And I was, um, senior editor. So she was my boss. I see. Okay. And, and yeah. And, um, I, before that I had worked for ESPN, the men's side. Um, and I, I felt like they, uh, they encouraged my ideas and they listened to a lot of things that I had to say. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and of course in the world of writing and journalism, um, I'm no stranger to ideas being vetoed or, you know, saying, no, that's not going to fit. That's fine. It's, it's, that's normal to have writer rejection. But when Tanya uh, turned down my proposal to make a documentary film on women's cycling, um, that one didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. The way that she said that, you know, well, does anybody even watch this? And I counteracted that and said, well, the reason nobody watches it is because there is no way to watch it. You, we can't watch what we can't see. Right. But we, being ESPN, we have the power to flip the switch and to put it out there so people can see it. And I have to tell you, you know, and I tried to explain to her, I said, well, well, cycling might not have the same foothold in the U.S. that it does in other parts of the world. I tried to explain that it is an enormous global sport and it is huge in so many other countries where it is their number one sport. Mm-hmm. So listen, give it a chance. And also, you know, this is just a couple years after the downfall of um, the doping scandals and the Armstrong stuff. Yes. And to actually shine a very positive light on a side of the sport that hasn't been seen would have been perfect. Cycling fans wanted this. They want mm-hmm. to know what, what else is out there, what comes next, right? Yes. So still, she didn't see that. She didn't see the vision. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, from her response, too, it, it, to me, it felt like a very juvenile and short-sighted way to, you know, well, does anyone watch that? And no one's going to watch a film on women's cycling. Um, that attitude for me is really what ignited that competitive spark of like, oh, yeah, you think? Well, I'm going to prove you wrong, you know? Right. And it, it again, stirred my soul so much that I felt, well, if ESPN isn't going to do this, then I am. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's where that's where the big change really took place. <laughs> yeah, neat. Uh, well, you have a term in here, and I'm sure I'm going to use this term in the future, and you call it sister blocking. Talk about this term and how how it relates yeah. to that story. I figured that we needed a name for this phenomenon. So that's where I came up with sister blocking. And the definition is women who hold back other women. Sometimes it's very deliberate. Other times it's a little bit more insidious and, you know, it's uh, passive aggressive. But at the end of the day, whichever form it takes, it's a woman who holds back another woman. Um, And it's it's an upsetting thing out there, especially in this particular situation where all I was trying to do is um, elevate women and, and provide a platform for equality and equity in viewing women's sports. So it really was so bizarre to me that another woman was, was blocking this attempt. Right. Right. I don't get it. So it was educational for me to be like, what's going on here. Right. Um, and it wasn't, unfortunately, you know, this from reading the book, it wasn't just the film. Um, Tanya was turning down a number of articles that I, I pitched during my time as senior mm-hmm. editor, which honestly, that was, I was in a pretty influential position of being able to um, make decisions about what stories we were going to run and write. And, but ahead of me, of course, my editor in chief could veto these things. Yes. But what I was bringing to the table, it, you know, it's so important that we have the stories of Venus and Serena and Abby Wambach and Megan Rapino. We need those stories. Mm-hmm. We also need the stories that nobody hears about in sports um, and the ones that can sometimes be edgy. You know, we need to talk about um, maybe athletes who have a rough time with uh, depression or somewhere, you know, we need to talk more about mental health and yes. mental illness in sport. We also need to talk about, um, you know, postpartum depression, things that other women athletes might face. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have to talk about the inequity and the obstacles. And unfortunately, where Tanya was coming from was this idea that, um, no, we only need to write about happy, smiley winners. Yeah. You know, only things that really look great. Right. And, right. You know, I'm like, okay, guess what? That's not news. That's, right. you know, news needs to um, eliminate any sort of bias, yeah. and especially casting women into a certain role. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, talking about sister blocking. Uh, when you were racing professionally on the Colavita team, the olive oil company, the team captain, Winona, not only was she sister blocking, but basically she was hazing you, sabotaging you. And there was actually some physical abuse with a massage, uh, mental abuse, downright bullying. And she benched you. Talk about what happened? I, I think th- there was part of this was the film you were making, the documentary Half the Road. I think she thought it was a film about you and not what you were really doing. And and there was sort of an attitude about, you know, who do you think you are? You know, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this was our team director for, okay. uh, for Cola Vida. And this is the, the manager, basically, the person mm-hmm. who, you know, decides which athletes will um, head to what race. And um, I also like to point out that Cola Vida, the olive oil company, was the sponsor of the team. And okay. they are, they're a wonderful company. I still, to this day, buy their products. Yeah. Um, but Winona was the manager that year. And this is true in other companies. Sometimes there's just one 
bad egg <laughs> and it that person i won't let her take down you know the rest of of cola vita or have you know or leave that kind of stain on mm -hmm. on the memory in any way or the company so mm -hmm. um but but absolutely we sure could have done without her leadership that That's particular right. year you know and that was 2013 um and so her where she was able to um use her sister blocking powers was the fact that she said to me yeah you know uh, this equality stuff that you're talking about, you know, sponsors aren't going to like that. They're going to turn away from the sport. We're going to lose sponsorship. Um, so you just need to, you know, pretty much wave, smile, look pretty, say everything's okay. You know, that was her view, mm -hmm. which is very, very antiquated, right? And she's really, she was only a few years older than me. So um, that was, I, I had no luck convincing her otherwise. And then when I started making the documentary, Half the Road, um, one of the obstacles we run into when we're trying to create somebody that nobody yet has the physical ability to see, um, it leaves a lot of room for misinterpretation. So she's, you know, she sees that I am often traveling with a cameraman and she made the assumption that the, that this is a film about me. <laughs> yes, right. when it was the opposite you know the cameraman was there to do interviews with me but the camera wasn't on me it was on the other people right mm -hmm. right <laughs> so it it makes sense but her visual idea of what was happening was that this was a film about me yeah. and that was so hard eventually of course you know in my heart and soul i knew that that was that was wrong and you know and and that eventually she would see the light but it's so hard to convince somebody during that process before you have yeah. an actual tangible product in hand. So. Yeah, I know that um, in the book, you kept quiet about this and you didn't tell John, the, um, the executive with Cola Vita and, until later. And um, so you kept this to yourself. I mean, it just, it was infuriating. It was, what was, so here's the double standard that I was up against was, she said to me, um, if you keep talking about this stuff, I will not race you this year. And sure enough, she raced me once and then kept her, her word. You know, I raced in the early spring of 2013 and then I was benched the rest of the season. However, I was not removed from the team. Mm. Um, John, the owner of Colavita, the company, you know, the, he, he liked me. So I think what her tactic was, well, I'm not going to drop Catherine from the team, but I'm not going to race her. Right. And yeah. for me, that was also hard because finally this was my second year racing professionally. And I was like, I had reached my goal. I made the dream. And if, if I were, to, and I can't also necessarily leave the team because at that point in the season, all the other teams were completely full. Their roster was set and solid. So had I just left Cola Vida, I would have really abandoned my pro cycling mm -hmm. career. Yeah. So my choice was, you know, if I'm going to stay true and be a pro cyclist and how, you know, if I were to, make this documentary film on women's pro cycling and all of a sudden I'm not a pro cyclist anymore. Yeah. You know, that was hard for me. So yeah. I suffered along and thought, you know, okay. But what ended up happening was that year was so bad, you know, in terms of how she treated me um, emotionally, physically, the whole thing was a disaster. And at the end of the year, I made that decision of, you know what, I'm actually going to tell the owner of Cola Vita what went down, what yeah. really happened. And I wrote it all out. It ended up being a five page letter. <laughs> that, I know. That's how much content there was. I know the you photos know? of your back and everything. And yeah, um, yeah, it was not good. It, no. And 
wonderfully, um, John listened. Yeah, he did. And he got rid of her. He got rid of her. Yeah. He got rid of her. And, uh, yeah. And, um, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. We're kind of spoiler alert here in the book, but don't, yeah, we want people to read the book, but, um, it's, it's a really good, good story. Um, so as we, as we go forward here, I want to define these two organizations because at first I was a little confused about them. Um, Mm -hmm. first of all, we know that they don't really like each other, uh, UCI and ASO. Right. Uh, but they they wield a lot of power, each of them in their own way, uh, in pro cycling. Um, and I'm going to use my two years of high school French. UCI is Union Cycliste Internationale. Yes. Which uh, was founded in Paris 19, in 1900. It is the world governing body for sports cycling and oversees international competitive cycling events. It's now based in Switzerland. Uh, For cycling, it issues licenses, enforces disciplinary rules, and manages the points ranking for entry into the uh, Olympics to qualify for the Olympics, right? Absolutely. And if I can make a parallel, what the UCI is to cycling is what NFL is to football, MLB is to baseball, and NBA is to basketball. Every sport has an organization. So that's what UCI is for cycling. Okay. Now now it even makes more sense to me. Um, ASO is the Amori Sport Organization, which is French. Uh, This is a family, the Amoris. It organizes uh, sporting events, including the Tour de France, uh, organizes many other sporting events throughout the world, uh, golf and sailing. Um, And UCI and ASO are big oversight cycling organizations and really were the epitome, probably still are the epitome of a bit of the old boys club, traditionalism, antiquated patriarchy, Um, really a lot of beliefs about women not being um, you know, can race the same races, the same lengths, uh, as men, uh, not compete. And, uh, you know, people wouldn't watch it. And, and all of that turns out not to be true. But yeah, I think I've properly profiled as I go on here on in those organizations, right? Absolutely. And ASO's role is that they are the parent company that owns the Tour de France. Yes. And ASO, uh, or the Tour de France, seems to be the one bike race that the world has heard about. Mm-hmm. You know, nine out of 10 people can identify that the Tour de France is a bike race in France, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah. So. Um, we're going to talk about the progress you made with the women riding in the Tour de France. Uh, but first, uh, let's talk about the documentary before we do that. Um, it was released in 2014. And You'd made a decision to do this documentary, which you used online through crowdfunding, crowdsourcing that you didn't understand until someone explained it to you to raise money. And you raised almost $80,000. It was a very grassroots effort. Uh, It's called Half the Road, of course. Uh, You can find it on iTunes, perhaps Amazon. I watched it. It is very, very well done. And uh, listeners, if you watch it, and don't come away with a sense of injustice about the sport um, and the support men get in pro cycling and the support women really don't get, uh, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> uh, and a quote from the book, it says, the most important thing about this documentary it is that it wasn't about cycling. 
it was really about this injustice, right? And I was going to summarize what I learned about it, but I'd like you to do that, Catherine. You know, talk about the differences between women's cycling and men's cycling. Of course, some of these things have since changed, maybe not changed as much as they should, but talk about what the differences were and what you were trying to profile in the documentary. Sure. So um, what really infuriated me about cycling was how uh, behind the times it was compared to other sports. So I'm going to use triathlon as a base example. Um, Both men and women in triathlon have access to every race. They don't compete against each other. You know, men compete against men, women compete against women, but they, they both have access to the course, right? Uh, in triathlon, men and women race the same distance. For the professional ranks, the prize purse is the same. Mm-hmm. And just about every other sport I played growing up, that's pretty accurate. That describes all the other sports, right? So um, when I got over to cycling and I, I was like, wait a minute, I'm noticing that women don't have access to all the races that the men do and primarily the tour de France, you know, being the top pinnacle race. I'm like, where are the women? What's going on? And I dove into some research and I found out that there had been a women's race uh, for two years in the fifties and then for four to five years in the eighties. And I was like, what, where did it go? How did this happen? And um, honestly, ASO had cut it in 1989 they started making TV deals for the men's field. This is when TV was really coming into broadcast sporting events. And um, yeah, and instead of including the women, ASO cut the women. And so there was a movement even back then where the um, director of the women's side of the race said, well, we'll go make our own Tour de France. And ASO said, no, you will not use the name Tour de France. That's our name. We own it. You can't have it. Mm. And sure enough, they tried to get another race off the ground for women, um, you know, the, the fans, the athletes, the race directors, but um, sponsorship didn't touch it because it was almost as if it had been cast aside by the Tour de France and it didn't have the same name. So that to me, that was crazy. Um, and then, by the way, so now, you know, fast forward back to present day and still for the races where women were allowed to race the distance was often cut in half, Mm -hmm. you know, now here's the ridiculous equivalent. Can you imagine if, um, at the New York city marathon, the women were only allowed to run a half marathon, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, we're funneled off to a different road. Like you have to turn here. You're a woman, right? Right. This, this is, was just absolutely insane to me. I'm like, what do you mean? The women are racing 50% of, of the distance. And then to top it all off for the trifecta of inequity, um, the prize purse for the professional women was a fraction of what the men were racing. For example, Tour de Tour Flanders, which is a huge, huge world tour race. The men were earning 75,000 for the day and the women 1,500, <laughs> right? Oh I've never been strong in math, but I can see that that's nowhere near equal. <laughs> And it made no sense to me, right? Yeah. And so, so that's the kind of thing that ignited yeah. my journalism brain and my activism brain of like, why, 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 why is yeah. it like this? There were no good answers, right? And and you know, a couple of things have changed. There was no base salary for women the way men had a base salary. Um, and then the other thing that's changed, I think the median age has was 28 for women, which is pretty hard to do when you've got women on the team that are in their 30s. 
that's changed, I believe. Right. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is it didn't just, it didn't change. We had to fight tooth and nail Yes. For that. And we had to basically embarrass a, um, UCI to mm-hmm. make this stuff happen. Mm-hmm. Otherwise those changes would still be there. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we illuminated that in half the road. We said this, first of all, this ridiculous age median that had been around, it, it was one of those an- antiquated rules that had just been in place and nobody thought to change it. And so people just kept adhering to this rule. Right. right? Not questioning it. Not questioning it. And it made no sense. And a perfect example is that um, Kristen Armstrong, no relation to Lance, um, she won three back-to-back Olympic gold medals in the time trial, which is the endurance side of cycling, individual endurance. And she won um, 08, 2012, and 2016 Olympics. And that was all throughout her 30s. And I think she might have even been 40 or 41 when she won her, her last medal. Absolutely proving, you know, physiology um, that, yeah, of course, women are thriving in their in their 30s and 40s. So do away with this, you know, age 28 crap. Right. Because but your, also, our endurance it can oh, yeah. increases with age. Right. It does. And science yeah. has already proven mm-hmm. that. So that's also what made no sense is mm-hmm. that. These rules were still something that science had already debunked. Yeah. Um, so that so we had to push for that, and we embarrassed UCI in the film by highlighting the age rule mm-hmm. and proving that it was wrong. And we interviewed Kristen Armstrong, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and Chrissy Wellington in triathlon too. Right. She was absolutely destroying the fields, and she was in her thirties. Yeah. So yeah. you know, these are the things. But um, and the same thing too with the let's see, the age median, and what was the other one that we just said? Uh, base, oh, the salary. base salary. Yeah. <laughs> fought tooth and nail. And again, had having to embarrass um, UCI that uh, they had at one point, not even that long ago, it was 2013, where the head of the UCI, Pat McQuaid, said, oh, the women don't deserve a base salary. Mm-hmm. And he said it with this nonchalance. Well, no, of, of course, of course they don't. You know, and that's really what uh, ignited yeah. the spark to be like, what are you talking about? Also, when we talk about base salary, it's important for people to know that, um, you know, at the professional ranks, everybody's pretty much an individual agent. And of course, people can, the men, many of those men earn millions yes, in right. of their contracts. But what the base salary does it is it says, no matter what, everybody at this level will earn X amount of dollars. Mm-hmm. And base salary was, was roughly $40,000. Yeah. yeah. You know, so we're not talking multi-millions. We're talking about something that um, would actually be a little bit tough to live on in this yeah, it modern. Would be. Yeah, it would, but it's also it is livable. Mm-hmm. I know because I've lived on less than forty thousand dollars. Yes, know? I know. And it's possible, <laughs> yeah. so you can. But so even to say that, like, no, women at the world tour level aren't even worth forty thousand right. dollars. Yeah, um, and that's um, that's yeah. Pat McQuaid, aka Jim Burns. Uh, oh. <laughs> You got to read the book to figure that one out. We won't spoil that one. But, oh, the uh, Jim Burns story. I I got to leave that one for the listeners yes. because it's it's so unbelievable. Yeah. You feel like you're reading fiction. So I have to say that was one of my favorite things to write about was um, Pat McQuaid and his Jim Burns alias. <laughs> I Let's love that. Let's just say he was no saint. And, you totally uh, outed him, and there's there is corruption in there, and there's lying yeah. and things, and he just epitomized yeah. to me the older white guy that is a sexist and getting away with it. You know, mm-hmm. to me, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but the base salary, I think that was the saddest part of the documentary, is that all of these women just working so hard, trying to focus on their their um, passion of racing, mm-hmm. but had to work these other jobs. And the men didn't have to do it. They've they, you know, got these two jobs, and they're trying to focus on their racing. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't afford to do it. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And that's, yeah, that's what brought me to that decision in 2015 of being like, you know what? I'm going to have to quit. I was at my best in terms of race form, fitness, mm-hmm. again, endurance in 2014. In 2015, I was, uh, I was exactly 40 years old and mm-hmm. I was racing the best and the strongest that I ever had. Uh, but I was also being paid just pennies on the dollar. I, mm-hmm. and which required that I had to find other part-time jobs in addition to my pro cycling career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, I was carrying two part-time jobs and racing, um, and had I been a man, that wouldn't have been the case. Right. Exactly. Uh, you you say in the book, when you are an activist, you will have and have to have really opposition. And in this social media focused world, uh, people are very critical. Um, you list in the book on page 90 some of the names you were called. And um, I found this to be shocking and not shocking but you know and you Mm -hmm. kept a record of all the names you were called and some of them are good you know optimistic persistent strong bold but some of them are like self-serving rabble rouser not normal troublemaker and it just reminds me of uh and i'd like you to address this teddy roosevelt's quote about the man in the arena that uh you are the man in the arena and these are the critics, and they're faceless, nameless cowards. Um, and Oprah calls them Twitter thugs, and that's what they are. You know, they just they, they just say exactly what there is on their minds, or they're mean and cutting and critical. They're not the ones in the arena. You are. So talk about this. Uh, what you learned here? Yeah, I. It's funny too because I. As much as I like to be um, a warrior for change, I'm also a very sensitive person. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know what what happens in DNA that they put those two combinations together, you know, <laughs> sensitivity exactly. and, and justice warrior. God's cruel know. joke. Thanks a lot, nature. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, you know, so when I, when I uh, would run into these Twitter thugs and yes. social media um enemies of the state, you know, it was on one hand, I completely could rationalize and understood like, these are just really mean spirited people who probably are, you know, have some broken stuff going on in their lives. Um, and then there was my inner child, which was like, "Ow, that really hurts. Did you really have to call me that? You know? So, um, I had to kind of navigate through that. And one of the ways, or one of the things that helped me was actually keeping that list. Mm you know, of, okay, what am I being called today? And um, being able to look at the, you know, the 50-50-ness of for every really awful person that's out there, there was also somebody good that could mm-hmm. counterbalance that. But it was up to me to be like, which side am I going to align with? Which side am I going to pick? Mm-hmm. And, you yeah. know, it, it takes conscious effort to be like, all right, um, you know, I can either stay down in the dumps when you get called names, or I can try to latch on to the positivity, but that's, and honestly, that takes work. It does. You know, like, oh, you're so optimistic. That's because I choose that. Yeah. 
I, I choose the optimism. I'm yeah. not, it's not some delusional, happy sunshine. Like, no, I'm right. trying, I'm no, looking I, at the positive so I don't drown in the negative. Yeah. <laughs> I know it got to you. I, I know. And it, 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 you can't help but let it get to you. I mean, I read Glennon Doyle's book, uh, Untamed. Yes. And I don't know if you follow her and Abby oh, on <laughs> Instagram. I do. I've reached out to her. I'm like, oh, I think you're great. Go on. She's yep. great. Yep. Another good yes. book. And there's a really good Instagram little video of them and their, their different sinks and their toothpaste. And you have to watch that if you haven't seen it. Oh, they're great. I love it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A wonderful, wonderful couple. I yeah. love it. <laughs> she says, um, she she has been the victim of a lot of this social media attacking, and she says, bless and block. Yes. Bless and yes. block. It's really, it's a great, great one. So you can continue to do your work and not be, you know, not be shut down by it. I, you know, I've done that. I have blocked, um, blocked, unfriended, unfollowed, whatever it takes to keep that negativity mm -hmm. out of mm -hmm. your life. And I've also gotten to the point where... Um, you know, sometimes the, the trolls can be your ally. If, if they're making, if they're making a really nasty point, then yeah, absolutely delete block. You don't need that. But if they're making a point that stems from ignorance, mm -hmm. that is a wonderful opportunity to be like, huh, mm -hmm. are they being mean because they're, um, a-holes are they being mean because they don't understand something that uh, on my part, I failed to explain properly. Mm -hmm. So it's and a teaching opportunity of the people that are ignorant if they, if they listen or you profile it to somebody else that might be reading it. It can be. And I always advise, you know, don't actually write the troll back, but if they have actually asked, or, you know, if they have asked some sort of question in their, in, in their response or replies, that um, can be used to educate the masses, then I have on occasion um, retweeted or shared, mm -hmm. you know, like, hey, this is what this means or does or is. And you can use it as an educational tool, but I wouldn't actually engage with the troll. Oh, um, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes with the stuff that's really out there, you know, um, you can use humor mm -hmm. to, uh, to educate people. I think that that's often the best thing yeah. to do. Yeah, I know you've done that. Yeah. And it's really, it's really uh, uh, very special how you do that. And I, I've used humor in my business as well to deflect and really put a spotlight on things without, without confronting. Uh, yeah. So it can be done. Oh, absolutely. It, it can be done. And sometimes you can actually form um, a really fantastic platform from how you interact. I can give an example. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, in the sport of cycling, there are there. Well, this is luckily this is now fallen by the wayside, but podium girls, which in a men's cycling race, the winner stand on the top of the podium, and, you know, he wins the race. And it was this tradition where two beautiful women would stand on either side of the winner and kiss his cheeks oh, as he receives his trophy. <laughs> and it's a little bit nauseating. Yeah. Um, but it's also, and this was something that was just so steeped in tradition, yeah. you know, um, that made its way through the ranks until people started calling it out. Like, do we really need podium <laughs> girls, you know? And what a great area where you could actually use humor rather than getting so angry and worked up. Like, what a great area to use humor to affect change. But where I'm going with this is that um, I, I did kind of make make a statement about our not needing podium girls. 
And an older gentleman in his 70s had written in and said, well, I actually think it's lovely. And, and why don't people like Podium Girls? And you could immediately see that, that you know, he was brought up in a generation where that was the, that was the norm and you know it was okay in his eyes but the way that he crafted it was as a question he actually asked mm -hmm. why why don't we like podium girls why don't we need it you know and what a beautiful wonderful opportunity to use kindness mm -hmm. and humor uh, to not just educate him but he had asked on a social platform so others would be reading this too mm -hmm. and so I, I was able to engage in a really constructive back and forth and say well okay so here's why it's a little bit degrading but I also see your point as how you could see it otherwise and we had a great back and forth mm -hmm. and it ended up where he was like oh, okay I see your point you know and what a great way to communicate rather than to lash out or get mm -hmm. angry or to make somebody feel I don't know, inadequate. Yeah. In some way. Yeah. No, it's a good way to do it. And yeah. that's, you know, that we're going to go here next and, and how you, how you did uh, the biggest, uh, I think, accomplishment. Um, and you did it the same way you did. You, you really looked at the players and you said, Hey, let's do it this way so that they're in agreement. Uh, so let's talk about the petition. Um, being the activist and justice seeker you are, you decided that you were going to develop a petition through change.org and get signatures in an effort to start a movement towards equality, allowing women to ride in the Tour de France race. Uh, you got almost 100,000 signatures on the petition, the most change.org had had in 2013 of any other petition, and you developed a team uh, called Le Tour Entier, which is French uh, for, and the English translation is the whole tour. Um, and talk about the original founders. You, as well as uh, three other women, uh, accomplished athletes, talk about who you had on that team. Yeah, so um, I knew that if we were going to make some headway in fighting for change, uh, it could no longer be an individual effort because really nobody was just listening to my single voice calling for change, you know, and uh, it dawned on me in making half the road. Every time I interviewed all these amazing athletes in cycling, I asked everybody that same question. Do you also want to see women at the Tour de France and at all races? And they all emphatically said yes. And so when I talked to Mariana Vos, who was the, um, she, at this point, she is now multiple time Olympic gold medalist, as well as world champion, Emma Pooley, uh, from great Britain, a, another Olympian and medalist at world championships. Um, and then Chrissy Wellington, mm -hmm. four time Ironman world champion. Um, these women were all like, yes, yes, absolutely. Tour de France. That's when I knew I was onto something. And I thought, okay, let's collectively form a group um, and, and fight for change together and make this petition our launching point. Mm -hmm. So that's when the magic really started to happen. And it, when you look at all of their athletic palmars and then you kind of zip over to me and, you know, I was a good bike racer and I had some titles. I had some, some great results. Yes. Very, but, very accomplished. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, but I did not have an Olympic medal. I was not a world champion. I was um, not an Olympian. I wasn't a celebrity. I wasn't a wealthy heiress. Neither were they. But just to give you context, you know, I, mm -hmm. I it's not like I had any sort of superpowers here. 
but I did have a skill set. Yes. I had organizational capabilities and I was okay with writing. You were very, you're a very good writer. You're one of the That's best. So good. Thank you. You are, you are a good writer. Thank you, Susan. That's so nice of you. But I thought maybe I can use those skill sets in our group. And what I refer to in stand is I'm like, look, there's, they're the superstars, but somebody's got to drive the bus, yes. you know? You gathered uh, them and you organized um, and you led it and you felt the injustice. They agreed with you on the injustice. Yes, they were champions and things, but you served a big purpose here on the team. Thank you. Yeah. um, You know, sometimes it's the little details Mm -hmm. that are, you know, the the cogs in the wheel that move everything forward. So, um, you know, launching the petition, that's something we collectively wrote together. We created a website. Um, You know, it's not just like we're going to call out for change. No, our whole plan was not just to call for change, but to meet with ASO, sit down and build a race at the Women's Tour de France together, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, which of course, websites, drafts, manifestos, everything. There's a lot of work that went into this. Yes. And that's where, you know, all of that came together was that we all played a role in making that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And you talk about that in the book where it's like, okay, Catherine has reached out to these folks for years on her own. It's like, who's this woman, you know, Catherine that but but you appreciated more than ever, I think, the value of getting a team together that have different connections that have that have has a power of of team. Uh, which is different than individual power. Talk about that, that teamwork uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah. The power of team. And this is so important. And I always hope that if there's one takeaway from this book, it's that we're all capable of creating change. And the most important thing that we can do is surround ourselves with the right team that will get that mission done together. Right. So um, for me, and especially for, especially for these women, Emma, Marianne and Chrissy, it's more than the fact that they were phenomenal athletes, but they also brought something to the table in terms of their, their skill set from writing to communication, you know, um, and who they were off the bike as well as who they were on the bike was equally important. And I think that's very, uh, very important to state because I'm sure in our lives, we've run across people who might be um, really fantastic in their, their, you know, given field of talent. But then when they're, they step away from that, they might not be the right person that you want to match up with for some reason when creating change. So I think it's so important that, you know, we, we look for that, that depth that we're going to be able to work together. And I mentioned this too, in, um, in stand that, uh, you know, we were four type a women driven, driven women, sitting down to create change. And so a lot of human things come up. We didn't Mm -hmm. see eye to eye on every single point or, you know, we had um, differences of opinion, which is so important because we're human beings. We're all going to have differences of opinion Mm -hmm. from time to time on stuff. And so navigating that um, knowing that, yes, we all wanted the same result, but sometimes people wanted to take this route or that route, you know, uh, that's, that's important. So when I say like, yes, together we can create change. That doesn't mean that it's going to be a smooth ride all the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's important to talk about those, those bumps in the road and know that we can actually get around them and we can use that to our advantage when we figure out how to do so. Right. Really cool. 
So you did accomplish it. I, I was so impressed with how you uh, were able to do, prepare for it like a business meeting. And I've prepared very similarly the way you did for this meeting. And that is, who's going to be there? What are the motivations? How do we come out with a win-win? How do we say it in a way where it's not you know, confrontational or whatever, but we're saying, here's the truth. Here's what we're seeing. Let's do this together. I was so impressed with how you guys went in there and uh, pulled it off, um, you know, and you were able to accomplish. Talk about that preparation, if you can, uh, somewhat, yeah. somewhat briefly, so, and, then, and, then, and then what you accomplished. Sitting down with ASO, again, the parent company of the Tour de France, you know, that was the, the main objective of our petition was we want to sit down and have a meeting with you to create this race. And what's funny is that um, ASO eventually agreed to this meeting, mm -hmm. but they were like, oh, but it must be kept secret. Yes. We are issuing a gag order. You cannot tell anybody about this. And that made us giggle a little bit because we we're like, oh, is it so scary to sit down with <laughs> four women at the table. And we also saw behind the scenes that probably since they were very much considering making this race happen, that they wanted to be the, the creators of yes. the race. Take the, the credit, really. Right. They want to take yeah. the credit, which yeah. we know, you know, hidden figures, hidden women, that's, yes. uh, right. you know, that's a thing. It is. And, you know, but this is where we had to check our ego at the, at the gate because, um, that what was most important, and this always should be most important to an activist, is making sure that the change happens. That, you know, if you're looking for, for credit on your idea, then your ego is too involved in the game. Right. Then, the, you know, it should be focused on the result. We also, but that also made us laugh, too, because we had already created this public petition. Nearly 100,000 people had signed. And then, of course, the media went wild with that. So people all over the world knew that there were these four women that were fighting for change. So, you know, we were like, oh, that's cute. The Tour de France is going to be like, look, this race is our idea. But a lot of people know that you know, yeah. Yeah. women calling for change. So, okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of the, you know, behind the scenes. But I also think it's important to talk about the fact that if you today were to go to La Course by Tour de France or the ASO website, you will see no mention of any of our names. I know. It's unbelievable. You know, it is. Unbelievable. It is. But and you were tweeting out like, good things are happening. And they're like, oh, yes. take it down. <laughs> That's right. They're gag order. They were watching yeah. us. And so, for example, our, our meeting happened on October 1st of 2013. And on the morning of October 1st, I tweeted something extremely generic. Yes. Like, good things are happening today. <laughs> that was the sentence, yeah. right? It didn't allude to ASO. It didn't allude to anything. It's just good things are happening today. Yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, within, you know, 10, 15 minutes of the tweet, I get an email, take down your tweet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was like, okay. And yeah. the reason I did, I think I knew in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'll take it down today, but someday the world's going to know about this. Yeah. yeah. You can't keep me silenced forever. So, you know, now it's out in stand. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the world has access to know the truth about yeah. that. 
That's the but, truth. And, um, you know, you guys started it and they can take credit for it. And of course they had a role. They had to, they had to make the decision to do it. Oh yeah. So, but yeah. in July of 2014, of course, um, La Course by La Tour de France, uh, became a reality. And, uh, so your efforts, uh, yours and the teams were successful. And uh, one, next next question I have for you, I want to move on to 2014 being a big year. Your, mm-hmm. your documentary came out, Half the Road, in January of 2014. In July 2014, all of your efforts, team efforts, for a women's place at the Tour de France was successful. And you rode in it, mm-hmm. which is big. And then later that year, your husband left you. So... Talk about the highs and lows of that year. Yeah. Oh, um, it's interesting in terms of the timeline. He, he had just absolutely out of nowhere, unforeseen. He decided he was just done Mm. with this marriage and it was so out of nowhere, completely out of the blue. Um, that actually happened in May. It was two months before the law course by Tour de France, but what was happening in my you know, in my life was that everything that I've been working for in terms of La Course by Tour de France, half the road was out. Um, the race was happening and I had a book coming out. So everything was finally coming to fruition. And, um, the fact that my husband chose to very unexpectedly exit Mm. was, um, so devastatingly shocking to me because that's, it's actually, when you need your partner the most is when things are, are finally coming together and going right, you know, and that's when he, he left. And for me, I, I really uh, had to go into autopilot mode. So on the outside, I had to wear this face of um, brave warrior activist. I I was getting, you know, calls from the media every day. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there it, w- it was a, a big thing that was happening with the Tour de France. So I was in the public spotlight um, in terms of creating change. And I had to make this decision of almost like separating into two selves, the, pro- yes. the public self and the private self, because on one hand, like, yay, strong person fighting for change. And then this, there's this other side of me that was completely, utterly destroyed, mm-hmm. fragile, right. crying all the time, you know, and, um, it was probably the most unhealthy place to be. Um, Mm -hmm. But of course, in that particular moment, I was stuffing all that stuff down Mm -hmm. so that I could function so that I could, yeah, exist. And it didn't end up hitting me till, till after the Tour de France. Until later. And I've done that where I've gone through some really kind of awful things where I related to what you talked about, the person A, person B. It's like, don't show them. Be strong. You've got, responsibilities here you've got to keep going and this person b is sort of falling apart right and talk about talk about the depression uh the cerebus um the the, (laughs) the dreaded uh, mythical monster three-headed dog i mean the Mm self-doubt and uh, i'd love to hear a little bit more about that as we're closing in on the end yeah i mean honestly i think when it came down to making the decision to write stand and write about this entire journey i knew that if i were going to um to be my true authentic self and talk about the the reality of activism that i had to include the private side which include the the divorce the depression the struggle you know Mm -hmm. being truly very much on the cusp of suicide 
And if I hid any of that, um, then it, it wouldn't ring true, you know? So I had to, I had to talk about it all and find a way to write about it. That's also why I was able to start writing stand many years later, because I first had to heal and Mm -hmm. grieve and process, Mm -hmm. um, what had happened, you know, and anybody who's been through that type of personal trauma, um, knows that it does take time. It does. You know, if I, if I tried to write stand in 2015, it would have been the worst book ever in Mm -hmm. all of literature. (laughs) It would have just been hollow and empty and horrible. So, um, you know, that's, that's why the book has come out so much later, but anyway, the, um, the struggle of the depression, I think also hit so hard because, you know, um, I'm, I'm 45 now and I grew up in a time where depression had one definition and everybody understood it to be the clinical depression that somebody is born with, mm-hmm. you know, that's it. That's depression. You are born with it and it's in, in your genes and you have to take medication. That's depression. And now, you know, fast forward, I'm so, so fortunate to all of those who have come before me who have spoken out about depression and how many different branches there are on the tree of Mm -hmm. depression. Um, What I was experiencing and what I I believe many other people have at some point in their life is um, situational depression. Mm -hmm. Something really traumatic and profound happens. And yes, you do travel into the depths of depression. Um, and it can be equally as painful as life altering, as life threatening, even mm-hmm. as clinical and chemical depression. Um, but it's, it's just a, a different form and it might be something that we can get out of and get help for. Maybe we don't even need to be on medication, but we definitely need to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And none of that was really clear. Even seven years ago, you know, I, I still felt like um, that, that I, I didn't have depression because, oh, I've never been diagnosed with that. Therefore it doesn't apply to me. No, it is. There are different kinds of depression and there is clinical born with it, chemical kind of that you need to be medicated. And then there's situational depression. Mm -hmm. And I want to leave the listeners with the story that will intrigue them to even more by the book. And that is that, uh, I think there's a chance that Robin Williams' suicide might have saved your life. It did. Yeah. It did, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. it did. I so had, we'll, yeah, go ahead. We'll just, te- I wanted to just tease the listeners that yeah. it's a really, really important story for anyone that is suffering from depression uh, about your story and the situational depression and how we suck it up and, and, and so where, where you went with it and, um, so I'll leave the uh, listener with with that little teaser. And then uh, as we wrap up, because we've run out of time, I'll leave them with a teaser about your April 8th, 2016 terrible crash in Mexico that you survived uh, with uh, serious um, brain injury, head trauma, and everything you went through um, with that. So... That is a wonderful part of the book. I mean, it's a tragedy, but you survived it, and you're doing well today. I assume you don't have any long-lasting effects from that. The doctors have given me the um, permission to say that I am now just as weird as I ever was. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, I'm delighted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Any of the lingering side effects are minor in comparison to yeah. um, to what actually stemmed on that particular day. So I, I am very, very fortunate and very lucky. Yeah. So I know that La Course uh, by Latour de France is is still going every year, and uh, the ASO has not kept their promise of making it a, a multi day event. I believe it's only two days still, right? It you know what's great is that um, it's not just my voice or our voice of four speaking out anymore. Now the the racers and even more importantly the press yes. is speaking out and fighting for change. And ASO has um, hinted, they have hinted that a 10-day race is on the horizon. Um, and I like the hints, but I also know that they drag their ass on everything. And I'm not going to believe that we're going to see change until it's actually, there's a date set yes. and it's happening on X date. And then I'm going to get very excited. But until then, we keep poking the bear and saying, listen, um, Men have three weeks to race. Women deserve the exact same opportunity to not be, you know, mm -hmm. not be banned from, from a race for that long. So yeah. uh, we are still fighting. Yay. But what's so important <laughs> about having La Course happen every year is that it's not just La Course. It's La Course by Tour de France. We have the naming rights back. Yes. And um, that's so very important because that's the one thing that tour de france took away and it still happens on the same day as as the men's race you know on that particular day or two so um it's meaningful and i love that the fans are so irate that it's just one to two days yeah and that's helpful it's very helpful because now we have more voices right definitely and i'll mention too that 50 percent of the people that signed your petition were men Oh, yeah. Not just 50% on the petition, but 50% of those who funded half the road were men. were men. And that's huge because it's proving exactly what we were talking about is that um, when you are a true fan of a sport, mm -hmm. you want to see the highest level, whether it's men or women. Mm -hmm. And real fans want to see both. Mm -hmm. And those stats prove just that, mm -hmm. you know, from the viewership of Half the Road to the signing of the petition. And I'm also seeing it now, too, with um, sales of stand mm -hmm. and who's speaking out publicly, you know, um, and commenting and everything from reviews to social media stuff. It's equal parts men and women. Yes. So, you know, it, it's, it's a positive thing. We really are, you know, uh, shifting the paradigm. Yeah, really cool. Um, I know you lost your dad in May of 2020, and he was your best friend, and I know you miss him, and I'm really sorry that you lost him. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. I appreciate that. It's um, it's not quite been a year yet, and mm. it still continues to be an emotional journey, and I cry frequently, um, but it's the good tears yeah. you know, that happens when you miss someone, and I know that you can see the painting behind me. That's yes. my dad rowing at the head of the Charles oh, there. I know he was an athlete. Yeah, he um, he is very, very much here in spirit. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can feel his support and yeah. his presence. And it helps me, especially on the tough days. Yeah, and, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. Thank well, you. as we as we wrap up here, um, it is a great book, Stand buy it. Uh, it is, you're such a good writer and there's such great stories in here. 
Um, we didn't talk a lot about the Cerebus, but you <laughs> you talk about the three-headed dog, and I think it's really important to use that symbolism to say, here it is again, you know, and uh, let the reader, you know, uh, get inspired by that in the way he or she will. There's a very good activist manual at the back of the book. Um, it's spectacular just to really you know, here's what you do if you want to be an activist. Here's the good, the bad, you know, what to watch out for. So, Catherine, it's been an honor and a privilege to host you today. And if I could take a sword, I would slay the Cerebus for you, <laughs> cut the heads off. And um, if there's anyone out there listening and you think you might want to give up on something you're passionate about, it's just not worth it, read this book. And uh, just such inspiration and courage. And you'll see in the face of anything, you can keep going. You can. And, you know, it, it is a wonderful book, and I'm privileged to have invited you and hosted you as as a guest here. And you've accomplished so much, taken risks and just courage and effort. And I just really admire you so much. Oh, Susan, thank you so much. And thank you for giving women a platform to share their stories and to. Yeah, you're welcome. Our, I love doing it. Thank you. It's it. been an honor to be your guest. And thank you so much. And I hope your readers will uh, will keep an eye out for Stan. You can, you can find it where you find books. Yes, everywhere. <laughs> so uh, I just put a nice review uh, on Amazon today. Oh, I know those are helpful. I, so, I will go and read it. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good. Well, good. Well, thanks again, Catherine. Thank you, Susan. Really appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.